Well, indeed, a privilege to be back with you again, and we thank the Lord for the opportunity to uh, be here, particularly to have Tracy with me is a a wonderful blessing as we are uh, getting to that stage of life where, uh, where she's a little more freed up to be able to travel a bit with me, and we thank the Lord for that. You might remember that in Psalm 67, we read these words, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us so that there's a reason that God would shine His face upon us and a reason that we would desire such. It is, as He says in verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What we want to do this morning is talk about how the nations can be glad. We want to talk a little bit about how God is working His ways in New Zealand and bringing gladness, true joy to people within New Zealand. And then we'll shift over to the exposition of God's Word and talk a little bit about how God brings gladness to the hearts of men and women around the world. So New Zealand is a privilege to be able to serve in, and I think one of the hardest things we have being able to serve in New Zealand is to try to communicate that uh, it's not always about the place you live. You have that same experience. You get to live in a wonderful part of the world, And you know what it's like to be in a uh, lovely spot where you can enjoy the waves, you can enjoy the sunshine, a bit of rain here and there, and enjoy all of God's goodness in that. But you also know what it's like to be trying to minister to friends, family, neighbors, and to know the hardness of the heart of man. And we experience that in New Zealand, as you do here, as, as the opportunity of the gospel. So what is it that you do in order to try to bring gladness to the heart of men and women in New Zealand? We've had the privilege of being there now seven and a half years. As Eric mentioned, it was a number of years that we were with the Shepherds Bible College. That was the reason that the Lord took us there was to help with that ministry. And you might remember that now a a little over a year ago officially that the school closed. It's closed in the sense of... Not that there isn't a need, but there is a need for a retooling. Sometimes we'll do things in a particular way because it's always been done that way. And when it comes to gospel truth, that's what we need to do. When it comes to the methods by which we are training up people for the work of ministry, sometimes those means need to change, and that's the case for the ministry in New Zealand. And so we've been working over the last year to interact with uh, like-minded men and their churches around New Zealand as well as Australia and to discover what it is that would be most beneficial to what the the Lord is doing in our part of the world. What we've come to is to realize that our men that are leading churches around that region of the world have a deep need for encouragement. These men are in situations uh, not unlike the men here, but in some ways very unlike the men here. Uh, They get to be out in a a work very often, 
with people that are not of like mind, and yet the Lord has taken them to this little flock. Many of the men are serving in situations where they're trying to figure out how they'll survive next week. And they need opportunity to be encouraged and to to hear from someone of the faith and of like mind, carry on, dear brother, it is worth it. So that's one of the things we're doing is developing expositor seminars as a means of gathering these men together and encouraging them in their ministry. And that the Lord has used that well over the last year. We look forward to seeing how the Lord continues to use those opportunities. One of the things we'd love to do is to draw the men together and their families and do a pastor's retreat and be able to encourage the families in the process. And so you can be praying for those things with the training ministry. That's the encouragement part of it. The training part of it is to begin to do things in a way that is sustainable within the context of which we find ourselves in that region of the world. And that means doing things which keep those that are being trained in their churches, as opposed to having them lose their job and move and and take up some training somewhere else. Sometimes that's necessary, and sometimes we can be a little bit smarter. And so what we're doing is developing a means by which we can keep people in their church, equip them to be more effective in the ministry that the Lord has for them. And so, as you would know, that that comes with the privilege we have of living at this time and age in which the Internet uh, makes it possible for us to connect with people so easily. And so we will be using uh, video uh, means by which we'll be able to encourage and train up and we look to train up from the, the basics of levels on up through pastoral training. We'll be developing our own videos, uh, particularly at the lower levels of those things, as we train up the, the body of Christ and the fundamentals of the faith. And uh, then we will access other resources that are already available as we work our way up to, to equipping men for the work of the ministry. That's on the training front and on the on the church front. The Lord has been gracious uh, to allow us to be in the position of uh, shepherding a, a, a wee flock, as it were, in uh, the northern end of Auckland. And uh, we appreciate your prayers for that as well. And as I mention that, I'm reminded of some of the men that you have met. And I just want to take a moment. Russell Honick, who's been with you a number of times Sends his greetings. Uh, Russell's going to be an interim pastor here in the next few months uh, as a, a small church in the area of uh, Hamilton has a pastor who's an American, and he's going to come back over here, and Russell's going to fill in and be there for six months. Russell's also teaching in a Christian school and, and uh, will continue to do that sort of ministry as he progresses in this life and uh, has been freed up from the responsibilities of the senior pastorate at at Riverbend Bible Church. Which brings me to another man that you have met, Matthew Johnston, who came along. Uh, Matthew is doing God's work and uh, is doing a wonderful job of it at Riverbend Bible Church as he has taken up the pastorate there. You continue to pray for Matthew. Um, Matthew's a, a younger man, has a huge responsibility in front of him, But he's wholly dependent on the Lord, and the Lord is providing him the wisdom needed for the work that the Lord has for him. Uh, And let's see, you would have met Nigel and Serena Shaler years ago. They're down in Temecula, California with Chris Mueller. 
developing and helping and serving in the training ministry that's down there. So the Lord has done wonderful things, and there's great things that have happened in New Zealand, but it's time for a retool. And so on the training front, you've heard what we're looking at doing and how it's developing. And on the church front, please continue to pray that the Lord would be gracious to continue to expand uh, solid ministry around our area of the world. And as he does so, our little work, we just ask that you continue to pray that uh, God would continue to provide young families. You, uh, as I'm looking around, and some of you new faces are, are of the younger generation, and praise the Lord for that. That's something that we're praying for with our little shepherd, our little flock there, and trusting the Lord that he'll bring along some young families to encourage the ministry, to be able to train up some younger uh, of the next generation and see them take on the work of the ministry in the days and years ahead. So that gives you a sense of what we're about. One other thing that I'll mention is I've just been working on a series for our little church on biblical theology of missions. And what we did was we spent a good amount of time talking about what does the Bible say about mission. Specifically mission, we then look at what is it that God is up to with his creation. And what we discover is by looking to the end. And as we look to the end, we find from 1 Corinthians 15, from Revelation 20 to 22, even Revelation 5, we understand that in the end, there will be a kingdom of people that worship God wholly and forever. That's the mission. God is about drawing a people together who will return to him the worship that is due his name. Not because he's a megalomaniac who needs anything, for God needs nothing. God stands completely independent and could have been fully satisfied for all of eternity just within the Trinity. But God in his love and in a desire to express that love and to display his character, created. And having created, he then set out on mission. And as you are well aware, his created, we, the pinnacle of his creation, would choose not to trust in what he had said, but to trust in what we wanted to do. And turned our back from perfect fellowship with our creator. And chose instead our own path. Lest we think that that was simply Adam and Eve in the garden Each of us ought to take just a moment to search our own heart and to say, yes, I can affirm I would do the same thing. I would go my own way, and in fact, I have gone my own way. In fact, probably even this morning, I have had a selfish thought rather than a serving thought. I have had a thought about my own desires rather than God's. I'm a sinner. As such, God is set out on mission to draw back together a kingdom of individuals who wholly and fully and eternally worship Him. And so, the question becomes, in the process, how does He do that? How does He draw this kingdom together? 
What is it that God has done and what is it that God is doing in order to draw this kingdom of worshipers to himself? Psalm 67 declared it, that we want, we, we want to see gladness amongst the nations. I want to see great worship in New Zealand and Australia and in the islands of the Pacific. And that's where the Lord has us, and that's where the Lord is using us. And, and the question becomes, so how does God accomplish His mission? And what we want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to consider that. And we're going to consider that in one specific slice of the pie. All right? You set the pie before you. The pie is the mission of God. And the mission of God can be divided up into a number of things by which God has acted and is acting in order to bring about this kingdom of worshipers. We want to look at just one slice this morning. That slice that we want to look at this morning is, how does Christ accomplish the mission of God? How does Christ accomplish the mission of God? I want to offer to you two main thoughts as to how Christ accomplishes God's mission. First, we're going to look at He accomplishes it through substitution. Through substitution. And then secondly, we're going to look at how Christ accomplishes God's mission through salvation. Alright? Through substitution and through salvation. What we want to see is these two means through which Christ accomplishes the mission so that as we think about that, we not only rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ, but we take up in our own hearts and minds the necessary response to the all-sufficient work of Christ. God accomplishes His mission of creating a kingdom of worshipers by the Son of God being the substitute for sinners and being the preserver of His worshipers. If you will, I invite you to turn with me. We want to look over at at Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at several verses here in this chapter, and this will this will set us up in the in the course of beginning to look at how it is that Christ accomplishes the mission through substitution. You see, in order for Christ to accomplish his mission, he needed to become the substitute for sinners. In order to become the substitute for sinners, He first had to become incarnate. He had to become man. In Luke, in chapter 2, and we read in verse 11, For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. There it is. It's laid out in such simple language. We're so familiar with it. We're not too far from those Christmas morning. And we remember these words, which some of us have heard for many a year, that there came a Savior 
who is born. But do we take the moment to take a step back and to, to think through what came about at that moment? At that moment that Christ was, was proclaimed as having been born, what had been accomplished? What had been accomplished was that the Son of God had become incarnate. God Himself had become man because He had to become our substitute. You'll remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that in the judgment that God is giving, He speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. And you can see as this unfolds, and even in Eve, that as she gives birth, she is anticipating, is this the one who will crush the head of this serpent who has deceived us and brought us into sin? God has promised that there will be this one, this, this seed, this offspring will come. And He will bruise, He will crush the head of this evil, this evil serpent. And Eve, in having birthed, realizes Cain, Abel, both sinners. We go on and in the progress of Revelation, we see at generation after generation, mother after a godly mother anticipating, is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? No. 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 And generation after generation, the, the Israelite nation as they become a nation are anticipating that God is going to be faithful to His promise that this one is going to come, but He hasn't come. And we come all the way to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, excuse me, I'm back in America. And, and we come and, and Isaiah wants to remind the people, the people who have not only been called by God's name, but then they have wandered far from what God had called them to be and to do. And in their wandering, they're now hearing that they're going to be judged for their sinfulness. And as Isaiah begins the revelation that he receives from God and proclaiming it to the people, he says this in chapter 1 and verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together. We have been promised that there will be one who will crush the serpent's head. In fact, what he says in verse 18 is that though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Think about this, says Isaiah. That somehow something's going to happen which is going to take that which you are now as a nation being judged for and is going to take it from being crimson red to white snow. He goes on to say, though your sins are like crimson, they will be like wool. Let us reason together. How, how is God going to do this work? And we know that from Genesis 3.15 that it's got to involve this one who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. 
Isaiah goes on in chapter 9 to explain a bit of how this is going to happen. He's going to, he tells us some familiar words that we also hear every year. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. How is it that you will have your sin go from crimson to white as snow to be red as red can be to being white as wool can be? It involves this son that is given and a child who will be born who is the mighty God. And so you come to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And you say, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. He is Christ. This is the one. The one that generation after generation has anticipated. Here He is. He's finally on the scene. It's the one who will be able to take our sins and be our substitute. He had to become incarnate. He had to become man. But he didn't just have to become man, did he? You know, the anticipation of that moment and and all that it meant that suddenly on the scene, here he is. Simeon understood it, didn't he? Simeon is there. Look with me over at verse 26. Simeon is the one who had been told by God that he would not be taken to heaven until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple on this day. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your words, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There they are in this baby that has been born. A child, the son who has been given. And so Simeon knows that this is the Lord's Christ. This is salvation brought to man. It is that which has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. It's a light of revelation, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Jesus has become man. But He also had to become sin. It was not enough for the the Son of God, to become our substitute by simply becoming man. He had to become man and He had to live a perfect life. But in order to fully become our substitute, He had to become sin. I'd like you to turn back to Matthew in chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. For us to understand Christ's position, Christ's job, as it were, 
in fulfilling the mission of God, we need to see that in order to accomplish that, Jesus had to be our substitute. And in order to be our substitute, Jesus had to become man, and then, after living a perfect life, had to become sin. That is what we see in Matthew 27 and verse 45. Verse 45, we read, From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Three hours, the Son of God is on the cross bearing your sin and bearing mine. And bearing the sin that He would pay the price for. An all-sufficient sacrifice and the world is dark. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one moment that ever would be, ever will be, in which the Father and the Son are not in perfect fellowship together. Why? Because God cannot look on sin. But God is bearing sin. And so the Son is upon the cross. And the Father has to turn His back to the Son and be out of fellowship with the second member of the Trinity for the one and only moment in all eternity. Because I would be a sinner. Because I would choose to turn my back upon my Creator and do what I would choose to do rather than perfectly glorify and honor my Creator. And so God in His infinite wisdom had the full plan of making my sin go from crimson red to white as snow, and it would be through the Son who is given. And in this moment in time, the Son is on the cross bearing my sin. He had become sin. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins by His wounds. We are healed. Brothers and sisters, what a privileged position. We understand in a, in a very superficial sense. We live from day to day in a way that says, yes, Jesus paid the price for my sins, but it doesn't seem like any big deal. When we put ourselves back under the authority of the Word of God and begin to see the the expanse of the revelation of God and the desperate state of our sinfulness. And then we see that God in His infinite plan would have the second member of the Trinity be our substitute. Nothing I deserve. But in becoming my 
substitute. We have a situation in which Jesus, fulfilling the mission of God, had to become man, had to become sin, bear my sin in order to become my substitute. But if I leave it there, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Because if I leave it there, we're going we're gonna to have the potential of a universalism. If I just leave it there, it's Jesus has paid the price for sin. There's a necessary secondary aspect to this. And I want to draw your attention to that. I want to draw your attention to that through this idea of being or Christ accomplishing the mission through actual salvation. You could use the word even preservation. I appreciate that it was used a few moments ago as we read the Scriptures together. Here's the concept. Jesus became sin after having lived a perfect life. Jesus, in becoming man, living perfectly, bearing my sin, then resurrects, returns to the Father, and here am I. How does this work? I mean, is there something I can do in order to make this happen? Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Familiar words once again. And I just want to draw your attention back to them and the implication. Here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he proclaimed and the response that we ought to have as recipients of that gospel. And what it does for us in, in verse 16 is it takes us from recognizing people as we would have in the flesh, to recognizing people according to the Spirit. They are either in Christ or they're bound for hell. We see things completely differently. Read it. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What did the verse 17 begin with? You have to be in Christ. He he needs to go from being the substitute for sinners to being my Savior for my sin. I need to be in Christ. Verse 18 tells us, All these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And he tells us what that reconciliation ministry is in verse 19 and verse 20, that we become ambassadors imploring others To be reconciled to God? He gives us the kernel of the message in verse 21, doesn't he? He made him 
who knew no sin to be sin. You reading it right there? On our behalf. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the issue. Have you been reconciled? See, Jesus accomplishes the mission of God by becoming our substitute and being our salvation. We must be in Christ. Have you been reconciled? Have you bowed the knee? Have you counted the cost and recognized, I'm a sinner? And there is a price to pay for being a sinner. And if I have to pay the price, I'm bound for hell. But there is but one substitute who paid the price so that I don't have to. And if I will only bow the knee to that substitute, I will be in Christ. My friend, if you don't know Him today, tarry no longer, as they would have said in days past. No longer delay. Don't put it off. Make it now. Be reconciled to God. But I want to point out one other aspect of this. This is the preserving work of Christ. You see, Christ, in order to accomplish the mission of God, needed to become our substitute. But He's also our preserver. This is the preservation work of God. In our substitution, He became incarnate and He was crucified. In our salvation, He is our justifier and He is our preserver. Let me ask you a question. If I left it to you, would you stay in Christ? I can tell you what. Sometimes I can think that I'm all right and that I can do things pretty well. I realize that's my pride. And that I had no hope of accomplishing the completion of my salvation. Do you remember what Paul said to the Galatians? You foolish Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to complete it in the flesh? That's talking to me. Maybe it's talking to you. That somehow we begin to think that we're able to preserve ourselves in Christ. No. You see... The Son of God who had to become sin for me, had to become incarnate in order to become sin for me, then provides real salvation for me as an individual, then preserves me all the way to the end. Look over at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is going to 
tell the Ephesians this in very clear language, but he also expressed it well to the Colossians. As you're turning to Ephesians, let me just remind you of the words of Colossians 1 and 27. Paul here is speaking to the Colossians and he's, he's reminding them about the mystery of the gospel. And as he reminds the Colossians about the mystery of the gospel, he, he says that this mystery, which is Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. Christ in you provides you the hope that you know, I'm headed for glory. It comes because Christ is in you. This is the indwelling of our God in the life of the believer. This is the preserving work of God, of us, that guarantees we will make it to the end. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer and He permanently indwells the believer. And is guaranteeing that you're sealed. You are God's child. Verse 14. Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. This is God's guarantee that you will receive the inheritance. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you as you bow the knee to Christ. You have bowed the knee to Christ. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And that Holy Spirit is the pledge of God that you, you're going to be all the way. You're not going to fall away. You're going to make it. Look at the rest of the words. He's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Amen? That we look and we know that in the end, as God is developing and growing and going to complete this kingdom of worshipers, I'm going to be a part because of the goodness of my God who in His eternal plan would have the Son become my substitute by becoming man and then by taking on sin. And He would then become my personal Savior by becoming my justifier. And He preserves me so that I will be guaranteed Part of the kingdom of God. And I will be one who will be bowing before the Father and worshiping God for the marvelous nature of my God, for the wonders of His salvation, out of absolute praise for the grace of Christ. That's how Christ accomplishes the mission. Through substitution and preservation. Martin Luther, having been impressed 
by the grace of Christ and how it all began in terms of man's recognition of it in the birth of Christ. Penned a hymn, and he said it this way. He said, All praise to Thee, eternal Lord, who wore the garb of flesh and blood and chose a manger a throne while worlds on worlds were Thine above. The Creator of all, Submitting himself to being a baby. Praise to him. The hymn goes on to say this. Once did the skies before you bow. A virgin's arms contain thee now. While angels who in thee rejoice now listen for thine infant voice. You came in the darkest night to make us children of light, to make us in the realms divine like your own angels who around you shine. All this for us, your love has done. By this to you our love is one. For this, Our joyful songs we raise. For this we sing thy ceaseless praise. Father, thank you. And we do want to praise your name. And we know that we will praise the name of Christ because of the work of Christ. Not because it took the work in order to be worthy of our praise, but it did from our view. For if the Son had not become our substitute, we would have no hope. We would have no possibility of having our sins go from crimson to white as snow. And if the Son was not our actual Savior, then we would not have received that salvation by grace through faith alone. And if we hadn't received salvation, we have no hope of being preserved to the end. Thank you. Thank you that you will accomplish your work. That you have accomplished the work of the cross that you have been our substitute and for each one of us who bow the knee, you are our actual Savior. Oh, Father, thank you that for each of us who genuinely know you, we can be absolutely guaranteed that we will worship you for all eternity. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.